artist is nine years old. That's crazy. The black, the silent movie. Yeah, that's nine years ago. I know, right? It seems like just yesterday it ruined the Oscars. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Milan, and I finally watched Citizen Kane. And this is David, and I also just finally watched Citizen Kane. So, David, I'm going to kind of just skip over the fact that, yada, 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 we should have both watched this a very long time ago. Greatest movie ever made. Orson Welles is a genius. Um, But I think that the main kind of point that I want to start this this conversation on is it's not as good as I thought it would be. So when you talk about Citizen Kane, and I will talk a little bit about why I never saw it, 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 you know, because it's 79 years old at this point, And the reason actually you or I are even watching this is because we both love David Fincher so much and Mank comes out this Friday and I'm really excited to see that. And I know you probably are too. Um, And so I will be. Okay. And so it just felt like a great opportunity to finally, Citizen Kane almost feels like something you, you, you check off a list. It, It feels like a movie that when you watch it, it's like an assignment you have to do. Um, it felt like I, an assignment watching this. <laughs> and I actually enjoyed it probably more than I thought. And, w- and what I realized too is that I almost knew nothing about this movie except I knew about Rosebud. I knew that there was this guy that who said Rosebud on like his deathbed and everyone didn't know what it meant. But other than that, I had really, oh, and spoiler alert, I mean, I guess we should say that since we mentioned the word rosebud this early on. Yeah. Uh, Although it's the first word in the movie. I do love that it's the first word in the movie and it's the last word you see explaining what it is. Yep. Um, But I think when you you watch Citizen Kane, for anyone who just says at this day and age, this is the greatest movie ever made, without including the context of given when it was made 79 years ago like they're just full of shit oh i totally would agree it is the greatest movie ever made considering the fact that it's 79 years old um because there are still aspects of this film that have completely impressed me not just for the fact that it is a 79 year old movie and like oh for the time they did this really well like there's some aspects of what they did in Citizen Kane that still hold up to this day. Right. And for the fact that e- there's any aspect of a movie made 79 years ago that can still hold up to this day is like, that's amazing to me. I think the thing that blew me away the most, and I want to get to this in case you try and get to it first, is that this is where the Shia LaBeouf clapping meme had to have come from. I was going to mention it. It was, it was the greatest part of the movie. I was like, wait, is that, that has to be it. And then when I watched it again, it's like, oh, that's totally it. They're like, there's no uh, way that could be anything. A hundred percent it. And when I first saw it, much like you, I was like, wow, I wonder what other references I'll like pop cultural references I'll get because I'd finally seen this movie. There, there's not, no other one. No, absolutely not. So the, the reason I, and I was talking about this before we started with you, but I can't pinpoint exactly where the rosebud part of it was ruined for me. The thing I remember is the family guy joke where Peter records over movies that he rents from Blockbuster 
and someone's watching Citizen Kane and he just Peter pops up and it's like, it's the sled. I just saved you two boobless hours. You know, I'm, I was going to make a joke that it's probably Family Guy, but now that you actually referenced it, honestly, to, for me, it was probably Family Guy. Now, there's obviously probably so many movies steal things from this. Oh, 100%. Like, as I was watching that, I was like, oh, that trope I've seen so many times and it probably came from this and yada yada. But there's nothing that's like a dead-on reference to me that I was like, that I recognized besides the things we just discussed. Um, Well, apart from Rosebud and the clapping, I think what was kind of interesting about this movie, especially when it was made, is that it's kind of like, I won't say the first because I'm not fact-checking here, but has to be one of the first anti-hero movies in a way, you know? Well, there was, was, I think the original Scarface came out before this. Okay, that's fair. The second anti-hero movie. I just found it such an interesting story that, that we see nowadays and there's lulls and, you know, decades or you don't see this kind of movie between 2000, 2010. And then all of a sudden, every movie made in the 2010s is this movie. Just, I'm not saying specifically as an example, but for, you know, 1941, you have to assume that it's like the, the, the rise and fall of a man who has everything and all he wants is love had to be new for that time. I mean, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. And I think this kind of proves that you and I have like zero knowledge of old movies. Well, sure, actually, yeah. <laughs> before we started this, I was talking to my wife and I was like, what's the oldest movie you've seen? And I think the oldest I've seen is a uh, Shirley Temple movie, Heidi, mm. which came out like, which was in 37 and came out a couple of years before Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. That's like the oldest thing I can remember seeing. Okay. Um, and so it's just like, it is something that I feel like if you're going to start a podcast, you probably should have a little bit more background on movies, but. Well, also, if you're going to start a movie podcast, you should already have probably seen Citizen Kane, um, which well, hopefully no one stops us. It's a law. We have to have a license. We've been operating unlicensed, but the the fact that I think up till now, and I don't know, do you want to count animated movies? Probably animated movie. One of the animated movies, Wizard of Oz, is probably one of the oldest I've I've ever seen. Um, I, I thought for a time Ben-Hur was older than all these films, but Ben-Hur was made in 1959, so what do I know? Yeah, Wizard of Oz was 39, so older than this by a little bit, but not... Um, when, when was Snow White made? 37, but it came out in 38, and then the Heidi movie came out in October of 37. I guess then Snow White might be the oldest movie I've seen. But, you know, like I like I said, I don't really want to talk about how great this movie is for its time i kind of want to talk about what things apart from pop culture references and memes what things in this movie kind of just stood the test of time i think the thing and you told me this when you were watching the movie the thing that you liked the least has to be the the newspaper coverage uh the first 10 minute setup exposition of the movie which i think was like a really interesting way to do the exposition. It also 
confused me because it contains so much information that I'm then like, where is this going from here? Obviously, I know they're trying to solve the Rosebud thing. That's going to be, but how are they going to do it? What aspects are there of his life are they going to touch on? And one part of that, that he gets called a communist and a Marxist. And I was like, you know, what, what is going to happen with that aspect of it? It doesn't really get brought up too much again. So um, the, only, the only thing I'll correct you on is that it's actually the first 12 and a half minutes of the, uh, of the movie. And it's funny because te- I, I text you and I was like, I hate this so far. And you asked me how, you know, how much I'm into the movie. And I go, 12 minutes. And then literally as soon as that message sends to you, the, the whole um, news uh, reference montage stops and it jumps into the plot and i was thinking to myself if they continued that for the whole movie i'm like how did anyone ever get through this yeah i i think that is just the thing of a time that's you know and you see that all the time too when you see older movies if people go to the movie theater and you see those like before like you know in the uh in the uh, Asian theater, in the Pacific theater, you know, World War II reels before people would see movies. So that, it's not, (laughs) 12 minutes was a little long for that to run. But when I watched the rest of the movie and kind of things click together, and then especially on second watch, watching that 12 minutes after you've seen the whole story and kind of get a good picture of his life, that part does become a lot more interesting. And, And like I said, it is a good way to set up the exposition of this and further, it's like, it almost creates this movie where, and you'd think it's, it's kind of crazy that a movie this old would do this, but it's almost like this non-linear storytelling where they still, they told the story of his life twice. And then not only that, the way the rest of the movie's set up, um, there's Mr. Thompson who works for this newspaper who wants to figure out what Rosebud is. And he goes to the second wife of uh, Mr. Kane, Charles foster Kane, and she doesn't she won't talk to him and so then he gets on the phone with his editor with his like his boss and says well you know first i'm going to go to thatcher's library then i'm going to talk to mr bernstein then i'm going to talk to mr leland and then i'm going to come back here to atlantic city to try and talk to his second wife again and that is basically these four chapters in the movie the rest of it which are sort of used as kind of divider lines and then there's um goes back and shows Mr. Kane's life. But I like the division of the story and the way it's done. It's very, it's not very nonlinear and it's very like, it's set up in a way that's kind of easy to follow, especially, I guess on second watch it was easier to follow, but overall just, I think it, it's set up in a really unique way. Yeah, not only is the setup, the setup unique, but also the, it's almost done like a, it, it's a true story about a real guy. And if you wouldn't like, didn't know any better, like how in depth it goes into like the building of Xanadu, which is like his multi-billion dollar, I know it's not billion, it's probably billion dollar today, but it's like multi-million dollar property, man-made mountain, a hundred thousand trees. And it was a shot at the end of the movie where he's just standing in front of the biggest fireplace I've ever seen in my entire life. I wrote down that it looked as if like normal sized people had snuck into the lair of a giant and like 
she, his his second wife is sitting in front of the fireplace and then you turn around and there's a couch that looks like it's for a giant just like the biggest couch you've ever seen too and 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 all that building and like the the almost felt like documentary footage of of them making it really felt like you were stepping into a, a real world person and this movie was this movie was about them and the fact that this movie is completely uh fictitious it it, it puts you in a in a headspace where when you're following this guy's life from you know him as a little boy to a young man to an older man back to him being a younger man i, I it, it it is nonlinear it is unique but i think if it's not done that way it wouldn't have given you the understanding you would need to actually appreciate how this movie ends right and you know how you're talking about how they make this kind of like a real figure too it's similar to, you know, when you see in Forrest Gump putting him in all these like real circumstances, but you have uh, Kane sitting on the train with FDR and then you have, or it might've been the other Roosevelt, I think it was FDR. And, th and then the, the audio saying that he helped him get elected. And then you have him standing next to Hitler and it's talking about how he was friends with people and then he would also turn on them, which is like, yeah, so he, he eventually realized Hitler was bad. Um, <laughs> And also the section two where he's talking to the uh, the interviewer is like, so do you think there's going to be a war in Europe? And he's like, I've talked to them. Cooler heads will prevail. It's like, all right, well. Well, actually, I, a thing that I, I did not expect from this movie is kind of how funny it is at times. Um, like the comedy points are just really, really great. I think the, the scene that exemplifies that the most is when they first go to the newspaper Okay. When, uh, when Mr. Leland and it's like when um, Bernstein is telling the time that Mr. Leland and Mr. Kane first, like after they had decided that they were going to run it. And there's that guy, uh, I think it is it Mr. Kramer, who is like the guy or Mr. The one with the severely balding head. He's got the severely balding, balding head, but then also has like the hairs that hang down over his head. We're just going to call him Mr. Carter because that's his actual name. So where Mr. Carter is like trying to like have everyone stand up and come at attention. And then he shakes Leland's hand saying, I'm you know, nice to meet you, Mr. Kane. Then as they're moving all this stuff in back and forth, as they're getting in his way, like that whole scene's hilarious. Well, even like um, the fact that, that Charlie Kane has, you know, more money than, you know, God himself at one point uh, my, one of my favorite co uh, comedic aspects of this is they're talking about a, a rival newspaper that's been around longer and, and highly more successful. And they're like, you see the ch their uh, board of chairmen. It took them 20 years to build this board of chairmen. And then in the next shot, uh, Kane basically bought them all in like a day. And like now that's his board of chairmen. I thought that was great. Well, I love the way they did that too. You see the picture and he's like, we're, you know, look at that, look at those guys and Bernstein's like, well, yeah, it took them 20 years to get all that together. And then it goes into the picture and then that becomes real life. And he's like, they're taking the picture again. There's so many cinematography um, effects and shots in this movie that I'm like, it, they had to have not, maybe not been invented in this movie, but had to, had to be like next level for this film. 
One is when they're kind of introducing our first time seeing Kane's second wife. And it's that uh, Kane, uh, crane shot. I was going to say Kane shot. The crane shot from the roof of the mar like the roof's sign going through the sign down the window. And then obviously they couldn't go through the window, but there's like this fade in shot that now they're inside the, the place. And I was like, that's really cool. And they must've thought it was cool because they did that like two or three times in the movie. Yeah. And speaking about the comedy elements too, I also liked, I think you and I said, you may agree with me, but I think we talked about this, that uh, my favorite scene is the, um, when you have the young Mr. Kane and Mr. Thatcher comes into the newspaper to tell him to stop printing all the stories. Cause you know, you're one of the principal holders of this company that you keep, you know, lambasting in, in your pages. And, uh, then Mr. Thatcher brings up that he lost a million dollars. And he's like, I did lose a million dollars last year. And I'll lose a million dollars this year, probably too. And you know what that means? In 60 years, we might have to shut down. Yeah. So there's just like a, a baller line of like, uh, you know, I can do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, leading up to that, he writes, uh, Kane writes Thatcher a letter being like, hey, I, I feel like coming back to America and uh, taking over the newspaper, it sounds fun. And then I'm pretty sure Thatcher looks directly at the camera and he's like, it sounds fun. And it's like, yeah, that's awesome. You know, it's funny too. So yeah, he breaks the fourth wall there. And then in the very next scene, he's reading the newspaper and he does it like that time and maybe a couple more. He kind of reminded me of like, he was just going to say bah humbug at some point, like that oh, he, type of character. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, he, he was a very funny character and he's like, He's an exact foil to like what Mr. Kane ascribed to be, like what he wanted for his life. You know, he said he wanted to be this uh, philanthropist. Um, and so like that, I think the, the Mr. Thatcher character is pretty, pretty great. I also like that you see, you know, in the beginning uh, newspaper wheel, Mr. Thatcher is before some committee for some reason. And one of the committee members brings up like, Oh, didn't Mr. Kane hit you with the sled when he was a kid? And then later on, you get to see it. Yeah. I think, I think what I want to talk about next, if you're, if you're okay with it, is the, the scene where Mr. Kane's a child, where Charlie's like, you know, going like back to that. Eight part. years old, something like yeah, that. And something yeah, I think, I think that's a good scene to talk about right now because it leads to basically kind of like, the jumping off point of this movie. Right. And, and also too, the way you get to that scene is you, they go to the Thatcher library and I loved how like over the, the top they were with how impersonal, cold, minimalistic it was, how, you know, sterile and like the way that the woman who was in charge talked to him there's another funny scene in that when uh when he's leaving the library and he hasn't figured out what rosebud means and then there's two people one is the woman that like sees him off and he goes she she's something like uh did you find the answers you were looking for and he's like no i don't know what rosebud is and they're like what and he turns to him and he goes are you rosebud and he's like no <laughs> she and he's she he turns to her and he's like are you rosebud and she's like no and he's like Never mind, and just leaves. <laughs> Thought that was really funny. Yeah. So I think what's interesting about when you see him as a child, 
is it's probably the happiest you'll ever see him, which like most people probably exude more happiness as a child anyway. But I think it's a good contrast to see he's just out by himself playing with his sled, you know, wink, wink. And um, just having the time of his life and doesn't really seem to need anything else. And then his mom decides to, to give him away. I'm trying to remember what was he playing. He was pretending he was in some sort of war, wasn't I he? Think, I think he was doing Civil War and he was a Union soldier. That's what, what it is. Like. Yeah, you're right. Because he was like, die, Confederates, or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I asked you what exactly happened um, and why his parents had to give him away. You explained it to me like the mother inherited like a seemingly useless piece of land, but it apparently had like a lot of gold, which I assume during the gold rush days of, of America. And yeah, the movie says that it had the third largest gold deposit in the world. And instead of, and instead of just like claiming this land or selling this land and getting all the money and showing like, Oh, they moved up in the world. It's this very weird scene where this guy comes in and takes her son away for a quote-unquote better life. You know what? And so we talked about this before I was watching it the second time, and I did kind of figure it out. And so one, Mr. Thatcher says that he's going to send the parents 50000 a year, which in the 1800s is like an insane-ass amount of money. So like they're fine. Oh, just for reference, just for reference, David, on how insane ass amount of money that is, the budget for Citizen Kane, the movie, uh-huh. in 1941, is about $840,000, which <laughs> in today's equivalent to $15 million. Right. Which is still very low for a movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think that scene also, too, it, it kind of portrays how much... Uh, Charles loves his parents but if you notice at the very end when he hits Mr. Thatcher with the with the sled um, his dad goes to hit him and the mom kind of stops it and she's like you think he deserves a thrashing he's like I absolutely do and she's like and that's why I'm sending him away yeah he she she elaborates on that a little bit more saying like and you'll never hurt this boy again which makes me think there's some sort of like physical abuse involved but it's funny because she thinks she's doing what's best for him. And given a set of circumstances where you can keep your son with you and live a very ha- like a life with a lot of money, but you are with your abusive husband who is going to continue to possibly hurt this child. I mean, they don't go into so much detail. And the way Charles like looks at his father, he seems to love him. And I mean... In the 1800s, even up until like 30 years ago, seeing someone hit a child in public was not something that you even batted an eye at. So like the level of abuse is is something they don't go into. But the mom has to decide between, am I going to let my son be hit or am I going to send him off to get the best education to travel the world and when he turns 25 years old, be one of the richest men on the planet? I mean, that's a hard decision for her to have to make. And even with knowing how this movie turns out, you still can't say whether or not that was the wrong decision. Well, you know, we talk about how things have aged so well in this, in this film. And I would say the dialogue is about half and half. 
there's some stuff that's written in this that the characters say that is so nuanced and so like you know you you miss it if you don't catch it right then and there and it's done so well but then there's us other aspects of filmmaking in the dialogue in the camera shots that are like oh this is just kind of an old movie falling into like tropes of of that the time so i would say the the nuance and and acting and dialogue of the his childhood uh scene is very well done as opposed to i was not a fan of the back and forth whip pan shots when he's sitting down across from his first wife and there's like an age progression going on there yeah i mean i thought that was i thought that was good like i like that scene and i i will say it's probably something we've seen a lot of now I thought it was a really funny way of handling the transition in their marriage and showing how things went bad. And it's also like, you know, how much time were you going to spend on that? It's probably something they didn't want to spend as much time. But so it's that's just like an e- easy way to do it. I understand that, but it was just weird for me because no other aspect of the movie was paced in that sort of way. So it was kind of like, it took me out of it a lot. Right. No, no, I get that. And it also, too, I mean, we can get, get to it a little bit, you know, the movie portrays uh, Charles Kane as never having any friends except for Mr. Lee, Leland and Mr. Bernstein. And Mr. Bernstein is almost just more of like a right-hand man, really. Like, so Leland is kind of his only actual friend. Well, with, with, even with Mr. Leland, there's still a... So he becomes friends with Mr. Leland by like failing out through all these like high-end Ivy League schools together, right? Right. And what I notice is even through like their old age, not their like old, old age, because they had a falling out when I would assume they were in their like late 30s, early 40s, possibly. Right. Um, What I found interesting was Mr. Leland called... uh, Charles Kane, Mr. Kane, like 90% of the time. There's a few times where he, he called him Charlie, but most of the time it's Mr. Kane. But then when Charles Kane addressed Jed, uh, Jedediah Leland, it's always Jed or Jedediah. And there's always seeming like a kind of a hierarchy in that, in that sort of friendship. Right, too. And that's the only person he refers to uh, the only man that he would call by the first name was Jedediah because it's Mr. Bernstein, Mr. Thatcher, um, you know, his wife, he would call her Susie. Um, yeah. And I think what's interesting too, is seeing kind of the way their friendship goes in the movie. And I was trying to pinpoint, cause it's, it's kind of subtle what drives their friendship apart. And there's some lines in one, a pretty good scene. It's like a kind of a dated scene. It's a, it's a scene that you would see in a, in a movie like this, but not necessarily today, but the scene after he steals all the, uh, all the newspaper men from the rival newspaper, uh, the Chronicle mm-hmm. and the, the dancing scene. And Mr. Leland uh, turns to Mr. Bernstein and is like, you know, all these paper men are from that paper. How are they going to fare at this paper? And uh, Mr. Bernstein's like, oh, you know, Charles, uh, Mr. Kane, he'll, he'll turn them into his type of people. And Leland's like, well, I just hope he doesn't turn them into their type of people. And I think you can see that 
that worry from Leland about what's going to happen to Mr. Kane. I think ultimately the thing that ends their friendship, and maybe you think differently, is the fact that Mr. Kane cheated on his wife. Because one, it seems like Mr. Leland was a friend of hers, like knew her before he even knew Mr. Kane, because uh, they danced together at the studio. That's right. But then two, I think uh, Jedediah Leland always kind of looked up to Mr. Kane, especially in the beginning when you know, he wrote down all those principles that he put in the first edition of the newspaper he was in charge of. Um, and so I think that the, the ending of their relationship, it kind of, it kind of shows you the, the arc of Kane through the movie and kind of the point of like how his life was going. Well, I, there's so much I want to talk about, um, Jedediah Leland. So if you give me a second, um, do you mind... Do you mind if I if I go off on on his character? Well, I asked you a question and then just basically answered it for two minutes, so I I cede the floor to you. Go for it. Thank you. Um, so I want to start off by saying that Jedediah, uh, in in his old age when he's being interviewed by the the journalist, is one of the funniest characters in the whole movie. He just wants a cigar. He just wants a cigar. But the whole execution of his character, he's kind of like a loony old man at this point. That I, I have to assume it's some sort of like uh, retirement home that he's in at this point. Um, like rich man's retirement home. Or the crazy house. I honestly don't know. But he's such a funny loony character. And he tells the story of his friendship with Kane so well. I, I would say that that's probably where you get the most personalized version of, of Charles Kane's pers- uh, life. Is right. him. And uh, the, the scenes that break this friendship, or at least to the point where this friendship is already broken, is when Leland is passed out drunk on his typewriter in the middle of writing like this like slander article about Susie and her singing. And in Which, by the way, yeah. not to interrupt you too much, I didn't think her singing was that bad. Yeah, but I, you know what, I agree with you, but I think on an op, opera, what, what do you call it? Operatic? Op- operatic. Operatic level. Um, it's probably not that good, and right. I don't know opera, so. But um, <laughs> but the the fact that he was in the middle of like a slander piece about her, and in kind of a, a proving him wrong, but also proving him right in a sort of way, how Charles Kane takes it, reads it, finds amusement in it, and then finishes it as still a slander piece against his own wife but still going to put Jedediah Leland's name on the article and then proceeds to fire him is this like really great way of saying like, this is who this man really is. He's honest, but he's also kind of an asshole. Right. But at the same time, you can understand exactly why he fires him. Although I was unsure because there's multiple reasons you could fire Jedediah. Uh, one, he's drunk on the job, and two, you're slandering the boss's wife. Although it's not slander because it was all true. 
Right. And that's, that follows his principles, which I found really funny. Okay. First of all, I have to say, I watched enough Mad Men to know that if in 1960, you can't get in trouble and drinking on the job, there's no way in 1940, you're going to get in trouble drinking on the job. Well, especially with your, when you're best friends with one of the richest people in the world. Exactly. And second of all, the fact that it, it, it goes against his, you know, manifesto principles of the newspaper to lie. The other scene I was going to mention is when it's Charles Kane and his second wife, Susie, and she's in tears because she, every newspaper in the entire world is saying how, you know, shit of a singer she is. And but also he, her husband's, <laughs> but also her own husband's. And then she knows that Leland wrote it and she's yelling at Charles being like, I can't believe you gave him a $25,000 check and fired him for, for writing that article. What kind of firing is that? <laughs> and as soon as like this whole conversation is going on, this like pager boy hands Charles a, a letter and, and inside the letter, it's from uh, Mr. Leland, inside the letter without saying anything, he opens the letter, he takes out a whole piece of paper and then he dumps out shreds of paper as they're talking about the $25,000 check. You can only assume that, that those shreds of paper is the check torn up. Has to be. Has to be. And the fact that you and I both know this, but it was never mentioned in the movie at all, I think is another great, like very subtle way of getting information across. But then the fact that the together piece of paper is the original copy of his principles about how he's going to always tell the truth and have an unbiased opinion within his paper. And he looks to his wife and she's yelling at him and he looks to the torn up check and, and it's information and it's comedy and it's just a great scene. He tears up his original principles, you know, and then it's a montage of all the newspaper articles from the Inquirer, which is the newspaper he owns, of how wonderful his wife is as a singer. <laughs> right. And I was like, that's, that's, that's when I was like, maybe, just maybe this is the greatest film ever made. <laughs> And to the point that in order, she like doesn't want to sing anymore. And by the way, her acting in that scene is like so over the top. And so like to use a term from that era that to describe women hysterical, like, <laughs> but I, to the point where the only way she could get out of singing uh, was to try and kill herself. Like that was the only way she could make her point was to like try and OD. And then he's finally like, okay, you don't have to sing anymore. Which is another great acting. First of all, I just want to say Orson Welles is the best actor in that entire movie. And maybe it does have something to do with the fact that all the other actors are from like a local theater troupe. But um, that's maybe, how they kept the budget so low. Exactly. And maybe that's why Susie, the actress who plays Susie, is, you know, kind of goes uh, over dramatic sometimes. But there's well, a Orson, great... Orson, Orson Welles also has like is known for his ego so it's not shocking that he like wants to be the best he doesn't want to be upstaged he's like let's just get anybody next to me yeah we'll exactly. make this happen exactly but still a good enough director to like direct all these theater actors into like movie actors so it even says more about his ego 
But the scene about him, her killing herself that I really like, I was going to mention real quick, is how he talks to the doctor and he's like, wow, can you believe it? She mixed up her meds. I guess she didn't mean to take that much, right, doc? And he's like, uh, yeah, you're right. She totally, it was totally a mistake. And he's like satis- satis- satisfied with that. Right. I, to, going back a little bit, when he fires Leland, one of my favorite lines, uh, Leland's like, so I guess we're talking again? And he goes, sure, we're talking, and you're fired. <laughs> uh, oh, preceding that, when before he figures out that, that Kane is re, or finishing his slander piece on Susie, um, he talks to the other guys. I'm, I do get the side characters mixed up sometimes. Who is in that room with him? during the firing when they find Leland drunk on his typewriter there's another man in the room besides Leland and Kane uh yeah that was Bernstein okay so that was Bernstein so Leland turns to Bernstein and he's like oh what happened to my article and Bernstein is like oh Kane has it and then Leland goes oh yeah I didn't think it would get through publishing anyways but it was worth a shot He's like, no, sir. He's finishing it per your, like... Yeah, the way you had it. The way you had it. And, yeah. I um, I want to go back a little bit to the storyline of how he met Mrs. Alexander um, and then the whole setup with uh, Boss Gettys. My favorite, my favorite, like, words in the, in the whole thing were... Uh, boss jim w gettys he says it so many times and the fervor he puts on that name like the hatred is great but the starting of that is when he meets his second wife soon to be second wife as he's still married and she has a toothache and he's gotten this mud kicked all up on him from like a a cart or a car or whatever um and she offers him some hot water in her apartment and that is 1940s talk for like let's do it like the oh. way she said, the way she offers him that hot water, the way she says hot water. The question I have is, how does she afford that mansion that she lives in? What, like they what, don't. What mansion? She, she lives in this apartment with like a maid, and it's got like one room, and then a parlor with a piano, and like knickknacks covering the entire wall. So what? And she I apparently in- works at like a store in right. New York. Right. So what I understood, and maybe I'm wrong and maybe you're right, but her apartment is only that one room that we see her in. And when she's like, the piano is in the parlor, I took it that it's the lobby of the apartment complex. Maybe, maybe. And so then this leads to the, a pretty cool scene. I was talking about the Jim W. Getty scene where uh, Kane has the huge mural slash poster of himself that has his name underneath that he's standing in front of that is probably an image i've seen before it was it's a really cool scene and him uh you and i both like you i wrote down this as a note and you texted it to me but he he's going on about his first order when he becomes governor and the whole scene's like very funny he's giving these one-liners the crowd's eating it up but his first thing he's going to do when he becomes governor is to uh, put Jim Gettys in jail. And like, after you got to that scene, you just texted me, you're like, is this Trump? And I was like, I wrote down the exact same thing. It almost felt like, like if Trump watched this movie and he was like, I'm gonna base my life off of uh, Charles Kane. 
Right. And then uh, to only like really emphasize that later on. So he has this affair that comes out and, you know, so his wife after this rally takes him to his lover's apartment. Jim Geddes is there and he's like, you either give up and tell people you're not running anymore or I'm going to tell everyone you're having an affair. And his wife, his first wife, Emily, just assumes he's going to do the right thing and come home. And he's like, no, you know, you can't, the, the, this line along with a few others kind of gives you everything you need to know about Kane. But he, he says like, you aren't going to take the love of the people away from me because that's the thing that's most important to him. And Leland says it later on. Um, and then his, his second wife, Susie says, you don't love me. You want me to love you. But he does that. And then, of course, Jim Geddes, who <laughs> at one point Kane calls him a gentleman. He's like, you know I'm not a gentleman. He's just trying to make fun of me. I am anything but a gentleman. And then Jim Geddes like, publishes this article and all these other papers. And then the Inquirer is like, it's actually a pretty cool scene because they're holding up a paper that says uh, Kane wins. And I was like, what the, how did he win? But it's them explaining like, oh, he didn't win and this is one option. And then the other option besides Kane wins is voter fraud rampant and that right. was like another like uh if if he if the president right now had a uh newspaper that would be like the front story it really kind of reminded me of like life imitates art art imitates life sort of gimmick and you know we live in this day and age of like crazy political conspiracies and happenings but you have to assume people 10 20, 30, 40, 50 years must be thinking to themselves the same thing. Like, oh, they're living in a very exciting political, uh, you know, atmosphere during their time. And it's just kind of like, nothing's new. Like this is, history is going to repeat itself over and over again. But what the movie does so wonderfully is it, I feel like it represents America very well as far as like, I'm just saying if we can relate to something now that happened 70 years ago in a film, like that must say something really great about the film. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're seeing all these connections 80 years later, then like obviously that's why a lot of people would consider this the greatest movie ever made. And there's some, some aspects to storytelling in this film that are just timeless. Um, and then others that, you know, maybe didn't age so well. <laughs> I think some of, the, some of the things that aged really well to me were the dialogue as far as setting up things throughout. Um, one of them specifically was uh, Leland's talking to him. It's when Leland asks to be moved to Chicago. And he's like, you know, you think that people love you um, and you want the love of everybody. But did you know that people are forming unions and they're going to want more than just the things that you want to gift them? They're going to want the things they want. And, uh, and he's like, you'll just have to sail to a desert island and lord over the monkeys. And then, like, in the beginning, the first, like, establishing shots of Xanadu, like, there's a cage of monkeys, and, like, he has this whole zoo set up. Like, I thought 
that part was really cool. And then the, the other part, like dialogue-wise, that I really enjoyed was um, Mr. Thompson at the end when everyone's asking him, like, you know, did you, did you figure out what Rosebud means? And one of, the, one of the women who is, like, helping take pictures, she's like, oh, I bet Rosebud meant everything. And uh, Thompson's like, no, no, I don't think it. I don't think it really meant everything. He's like, you know, Kane got everything he wanted and then lost it. You know, Rosebud is is probably something he lost. But he's like that one word, just Rosebud. You know, can't explain his life. It's just a missing, you know, jigsaw piece. And I think that's really cool because it kind of sets up the entire point of the movie. Which, if you want, you can talk about a little first. Yeah, I so one thing I kind of want to just back up a little bit on for some context. His second wife was so bored in that giant house and she felt so lonely that she made it like her hobby to put together these very large jigsaw puzzles. And so when they were throwing away everything or going through his stuff and they were like, there's so much like, junk and jigsaw uh, statues and jigsaw puzzles i don't know what to do with them and then the metaphor coming up with like rosebud is a piece of what kane's life would be if it was a jigsaw puzzle um i thought was just a really smart metaphor to make and then the line is rosebud he's so rich and he has everything the line is rosebud is either something that he could never have or he lost a long time ago. And I thought like that kind of sums up really like people who have everything like quote unquote, you know, very wealthy people. Um, It, it, what comes down to their most like establishing wants and needs are things that they either could never have or that they lost a long time ago. And for Rosebud to be this like significant piece of this man's life for him to say it at the end of his, his, his last breath. Do you make the connection, David, that when he was taken away from his family and in turn the sled, um, that was the, like the one time he was taken away from the one thing he wanted all his life, which was love, which he had with his parents. Yeah. I mean that, I think that has to be the whole, the whole point of it. And you know, it's funny that Mr. Thompson's like, I don't think one word can mean everything. It's just a piece in a jigsaw. And it's like, I agree with that and disagree with that. I disagree. Cause I think it's like Rosebud is everything, but the other way you could look at it is it's just the last piece in the jigsaw, therefore making it the most important piece. Because what Rosebud is, is taking him back to the life where he had love. And I mean, you hear it throughout. Leland's like, oh, you want to be loved by everyone. And then his second wife is like, you don't love me. You want me to love you. And he talks about how, you know, you can't take the love of these people away from me. Um, And so he went his entire life and I, I think it's probably assumed that he doesn't really ever see his parents again. And he goes his entire life thinking like these people gave me away and I, you know, I didn't get the love of my parents and I get put with this antiseptic Mr. Thatcher who, you know, couldn't love anything but money. 
And so his whole life is wanting to be loved by everyone because he was denied the love of his family. And so this rosebud is this tangible thing that he could have held on to that represented the love that he lost. And it, what's also interesting too is he tried to fill the void with so with buying so many things that I wonder in the end if he, you know, he tells Mrs. Alexander when he first meets her that he finally had all his mother's stuff shipped up to him. But we don't really know if he ever found the actual rosebud again and got to hold it because of how much shit he had purchased and acquired throughout his life. And I think that's exemplified too with like the last, one of the last scenes, which I think is one of the coolest shots in the movie. And it kind of reminds me of like the Indiana Jones, like warehouse shot of like, but just all of this stuff, just miles and miles of what seems to be just like artifacts, like taken from the known world. And then just this sled that kind of means everything. Um, so you, so don't, think, you don't think that he, he even knew he had the sled in his possession? I don't think that, I mean, if he, if he knew he had the sled, then why wasn't he holding it? You know what I mean? Like, why wasn't he holding it at birth or holding it at death? <laughs> no, I see your at point. Birth. <laughs> at birth. Uh, no, I see your point. The, the, the funny thing was, is, uh, you know, Taylor was kind of in and out of the room as I was watching this. And she asked me, you know, what, what reminded him of Rosebud? And I guess I was like, I guess it's the globe the snow globe that he was holding because it had, it was like a little log cabin and it was snowing and there might've been like a little sled within the snow globe and it triggered his, his childhood home memory. But I just want to back up because the last 20 minutes of citizen Kane is so just well written and well thought out. He destroys the room right after his second wife leaves him and he finds the globe in like destroying her, her vanity. And then that's when he says Rosebud. But at the same time, this is a flashback being told by, I guess, his butler who told the journalist that if he's going to tell him what Rosebud means, he wants a thousand dollars, which is like the coldest fucking thing in the entire movie. And he's like, right, I'll give you a thousand dollars if you can tell me what Rosebud means. And so the story must have went something like with the butler, like his second wife left him. He destroyed the room. He was holding a globe when I found him and he whispered the word Rosebud. And that was the second, that was the first time I heard him say it. And the second time was when he died. And it was like, so that's what it means. And the journalist was like, no, that doesn't tell me anything. That's not, you're not, what the, you're not getting a thousand dollars. No, no way. And it's funny because the butler was like, I knew Kane in and out. I knew how to deal with him in his like crazy mad fits. And I was the closest thing to him. And then his story is just this like third person perspective of like this really cold aspect of this man. And it's kind of really freaking sad how like, no, you know, he, at that point in his life, he had no one close to him. And then with the metaphor of the jigsaw puzzle and then physically seeing all his stuff from a, from a, like a hundred foot overview. And it looks like his life as a jigsaw puzzle, literally having the sleigh, the sleigh, the sled laying in the middle of it as a piece and then it being burned and the smoke 
over his property and then his life is just gone is it made me really sad because I was like, this man's life, his legacy, his purpose is as good as firewood. And, and that's all he like left to the world. Right. He bought all these things and he had all these possessions and the valueless ones were going to be burned and the ones worth anything were going to be sold off for the bank. Um, and I do also the, you know, when he destroys his wife's room, there's a point where he's trying to get her to stay and you can almost see it on her face that she's like listening to him because he's playing with her. And then he's like, you know, you can't do this to me. And then her face just turns and she's like, Oh, I can't do this to you. Right. And she's gone. I think like the, the, the dialogue to me is what holds up, as I said before. And there's one final like piece a jigsaw piece, if you will. You know, at the at the very beginning after the newsreel, the Mr. Ralston, who's like sending Mr. Thompson on this journey to figure out what Rosebud is, says, you know, uh, maybe he told us all about himself with his last words. And then he also says, you know, it'll probably be a very simple thing. And what's crazy is that's like this entire movie, because it is a very simple thing. Rosebud is a sled. But it's also telling us all about Citizen Kane, Charles Foster Kane. It's telling about the life he lost as a child and how he's been trying to buy back that love and win back that love for his entire life. And I think that's why this movie is so cool because it's so simple and so complex all in one. And the dialogue just leaves these little like, you know, a lot of times I don't like these like winks at the camera type thing, but I think they're done, it's done so well in this movie that that's why it's such a great movie. I, I agree. Um, I, I know we've talked about this, um, earlier that you said, and I agree with you, it's so cool how this movie bookends to the point where the first word you hear is Rosebud and the last word you see is Rosebud. And it's, I don't want to come off as like super cheesy, but for a medium that is film, there's not really many ways you can tell a story in which to use your, you know, a lot of your senses. You know, if it's radio, it's your ears. If it's a book, it's your eyes. And for, uh, for this movie to kind of take both of your senses that you would use to watch a film, your ears and your eyes, and to like imprint this movie and what this message was into your brain like that, I thought it was just a really cool way to do it. Having said all that, I don't know that I'm going to watch Citizen Kane again. Yeah, it's kind of boring. But hey, greatest movie ever made, right? Greatest movie ever made. Thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. This is David, and I finally watched Citizen Kane. And this is Alon, and I also finally watched Citizen Kane. Bye. Bye.